All right, we're back for another episode of Ad Creative brought to you by Pencil. And I'm here with Will Nitza. He is the co-founder and CEO of IQ Bar. I messaged him a while ago saying that my wife had just bought some from Sam's Club. Uh, we both really enjoyed them and bought subsequently every time we run out of stuff. So I'm really happy to have you here, Will. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Like I said before, when we were talking about how this is going to go, we're going to talk about all your frameworks and everything about life, but I'd love to just know a little bit of the origin story of IQ. I know you and your wife run it together. How did all this start and how did it, how did the, the you know, first year of growth go for you guys? Sure. Yeah. So I, I was really into the brain in college. I was into psychology, neuroscience, just anything brain and brain function related. And I didn't really know how to tie that into the professional world and make a job out of it. I was also really into business and startups. And so I was trying to think through like, where do those things intersect? And there's no real obvious answer. So I took a job in software just by default. I knew I didn't want to be a banker or a consultant or anything like that. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll try software, see if I like it. And SAT, the SaaS model at that time, this was 2014, was really blowing up. And, and I took a job selling oil and gas supply chain and operations software to Exxon or yeah. Chevron or companies like that. And I got really good at the basics of how do you run a meeting? How do you send an email? How do you get good at Excel? How do you make a good PowerPoint pitch deck, blah, 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 like all that foundational stuff, which was awesome. Not fun per se, but awesome and useful. And I also learned how to work under a boss and a boss's boss and how does a startup work from the inside out and all of that. So it was a really good learning ground and way to cut my teeth. Uh, but I didn't like it and I was not passionate about it and I did not want to do it for 30 years or whatever. Yeah. I read a couple books that got me really interested in consumer goods. One of them was Mission in a Bottle by the guys who started Honest Tea, Seth Goldman and Barry Nailbuff. And basically it just talked about a guy had no background in consumer goods. He was drinking iced tea. It was way too sweet and he wanted it to be less sweet. That was literally the genesis of Honest Tea. And it goes through the whole vicissitudes of buying a bottling plant. And then it was a disaster. And then they got these new accounts. It was a classic ups and downs of startup land. And I just loved it. I was like, I am this guy. How do I become this guy? It didn't hurt that they sold their company for a ton of money to Coke at the end. And there's this light at the end of the tunnel. And so that got me really into that. And then I read a book called Grain Brain, which was written by a guy named David Perlmutter, who, uh, it really centers on the intersection of nutrition and cognition. So again, I really was into the brain thing and started to get into consumer goods, especially food and bev. And then I read this book that was like centering on the intersection of nutrition and the way your brain works. And if you eat yeah. pizza every day for 40 years, you're more likely to get Alzheimer's and all this like crazy stuff I hadn't thought about. And so anyway, out of all of those forces, not really loving my job, reading those books, having an entrepreneurial bent in the first place and being interested in startups and just being young, no debt, no kids. I was like, all right, I want to make brain food. Like that was it. And so I spent a solid year at nights and on weekends, prototyping stuff in my kitchen with absolutely zero background in it whatsoever. I love that. First, everyone, he said vicissitudes. I have used that maybe five times in conversation over the last year and everyone 
looks at me like I made up the word. So <laughs> good on you. <laughs> I think the other thing you talked about was like the forces of life bring you again say you have this kind of north star i want to have this entrepreneurial and i love the brain and optimizing and figuring out how to work through it i don't love my job but i've learned a lot of these really important skills in terms of organization structure etc but then you have a few things that just bring everything together i think one of the things that happens when you the the hagiography hey of, of entrepreneurialism that's happened over the last five ten years is there is this grand lightning striking moment and it's no things move together, pieces of the puzzle all start, start fitting. And then you spend a year working on it. And yeah, I think that's a, that's an, which is why I tell people not to quit their job. Yeah. Yeah. Once you put a timeline on it, you're probably screwed. Like it's good to have timelines and all that, but just if you quit your job and you're like, all right, I need this to work in the next three months. And then you realize, oh wait, everything takes five to 10 times longer than I thought it would. Yeah, And then you start rushing stuff to make the timeline. It, I think that first year of like trial, like massive, lengthy, prolific trial and error was yeah. absolutely critical. What was the, like, when did you feel like in that year you cracked it? Cause obviously you said you did a bunch of prototyping. Like how was the actual like experimentation with that? Would it be, I feel a certain way I'm trying to get to X result out of it. And then, oh, I got the result, but say this tastes like shit. Now I got to get it to taste. What was the trial and error that you were going through as you were trying to figure this out? Honestly, I didn't even get, I would be more romantic to say I tried a thousand times and then I like cracked the code of this perfect recipe. And then I lost, like, yeah. it wasn't even like that. Like even I was trying to get to something like usable yeah, food and beverage is insanely tough because you're dealing with food science, like in bars, you're dealing with something that you need to mash together. You have to sit on a shelf and in eight months time, it needs to not grow mold, still taste good, like blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's super complex and I'm not a food scientist. I was, everything I know is self-taught yeah. in this space. And so I just wanted to get to a place where it was a thing that could be produced and put out on in the market and I could start testing the market with. Yes. But that still, even just getting to there is a big lift because your unit economics have to be at least decent and you have to find a manufacturer who will produce it and it will produce on their lines and machinery. That's a, something a lot of people don't understand. You can't just make something in your kitchen and be like, cool, let's scale it up. It has to work specifically on specific machinery. The contract manufacturer has to say yes in the first place because who yeah. the hell are you? You have zero sales. Why would they take you on? There's very little reason for them to. So there's all these like hurdles, but so I just wanted to get to that place. I have something, I could sell it, can be manufactured, let's go. And then from that point, the idea was run a Kickstarter, really. That was like the point where I was gonna test the concept because I didn't even know, forget the product, I didn't even know if the concept would hold water because it was a new concept. Do people want brain food, so to yeah. speak? That wasn't clear. So I could have made a, it would be dumb to make a really good product. And then the concept was flawed. Yeah. And so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So I just wanted to get to 80%, test the concept at some level of scale and then rapidly iterate. But the iteration never actually stops, which is yeah. a learning. I think some people think, oh, cool. You get to whatever version and it's done. It's actually never done. 
So I have a hundred questions off of that. I guess because the iteration was the last one, I'll start there. You have a you have things that are in market. You're selling in retail, you're selling D to C as well. What like what level of iteration are you doing? Are you trying to refine the bars? Are you trying to get essentially make it so that your margins are better? What is the iteration process? Or is there you have three to four different buckets of iteration that you're doing to try to optimize the business in some way? It's what you, yeah, it's what you said. So it's, I love that metaphor that Reed Hoffman uses of startups or basically you jump on a, off a cliff and try and build an airplane before you hit the ground. That is true for the product because what you come out with is not going to be financially viable in the long term. So like our first bar, I think are all in cogs and including materials and labor and packaging and all that was like dollar twenty a unit. And where you really need that to be is like 55 cents, like way off. So you need to get to 55 cents before you hit the ground after falling off the cliff, AKA run out of money or whatever, can't raise money. Uh, so that is a big piece of it. How do you get your unit economics down to a level where you can generate enough operational cash flow that you can sustain your business? And that involves iterating on your product, right? You may want to swap in a different element that's more cost effective or you can buy in bigger bulk or whatever. And then, so that's like the financial side. Then there's just like product quality. New technologies emerge every year. And you get smarter and better at food science every year. Oh, you, I'm kind of saying you, I'm referring to me. I don't know how other people yeah. do it, by the way. There are different ways to do it. This is how I do it. Every year we relook at everything and we're like, could we make this 5% better, 10% better? And that might mean it stays softer longer, or it might not even be perceivable to the consumer, but it means it lasts two months longer on shelf. Yeah. Can we make this? Okay. Let's look at all the reviews. Okay. Most of the bad ones are centering on it's not sweet enough. Okay. Yep. How do we make it sweeter? So some stuff too is just, here's another example. There's this sugar substitute called allulose and it's, it elicits zero insulin response. So it's great yep. for diabetics, keto people, whatever, but whole foods banned it for a while. I think they still ban it. And so you might make commercial decisions where you're like, okay. Could we reformulate this such that we don't rely on allulose? And then that would open up that slice of addressable market in whole foods. So you might make tweaks based on for commercial reasons, brick and mortar commercial reasons, or maybe the UK doesn't allow allulose. So you're like, oh shoot, I want to sell on Amazon UK, but I can't. How much is that business worth to me? Potentially 3 million bucks. Okay. So it's just, there's so many, there's a confluence of so many things such that yeah, every year you're just slightly tweaking dials. Yeah, I I think that's such an interesting one because I think we all, we, at least when we look on the outside, looking into someone's business, we, we look at it in a very generic way. Okay, they're doing this, they're selling this, not, hey, look, there are seven different ways that they can make their business run better, both from the outside in and the inside out. And essentially you're trying to optimize, like you said, build the plane while you do it. One other thing you said, I'm really interested in this just in general, because it's not a skill anyone's ever taught. So you learned about sales, but one of the big portions of your business, and I think you said your wife runs a lot of the e-commerce side of the business, 
So you're doing a lot of the retail stuff. You're selling into the big retailers. You just mentioned a couple different places where, hey, look, we can expand. The TAM is there. We can expand though our serviceable dressable market. And so I'm curious from your end, what does it look like selling into those people? What kind of things do you have to build? What was that learning process like for you? Because going in from zero, having no buy-in, both by the way, to retailers, but also manufacturers, there is a certain sales pitch you have to go saying, hey, look, we're going to invest in you long-term. You need to invest in us. So what did you, how did you structure that? How did you think about that? And maybe what are the things that you learned from that process that you've taken forward into the business? Yeah. The first thing I would say is like, there's a flywheel effect between online and brick and mortar. So the bigger you get online, like brick and mortar folks are in their business of minimizing risk. They don't want to bring something in, which takes up shelf space and flops because then it affects their top and bottom line too. So how do they minimize risk? They want a case study that it works somewhere else, typically. So the best case study that works somewhere else is you succeeded in some other comparable retailer, but a decent analog for them is you succeeded online. So maybe you have tens of thousands of customers who buy from you on Amazon in LA and the, and the retailers in LA, and I can show you all that data. Hey, we have a zillion customers here. They're already buying us. These are your customers. That is useful. Yeah, that's why I like starting online. We started with a website. We layered on an Amazon presence. And we literally had retailers, like big retailers, reach out to us just because they saw we were big on Amazon. So that flywheel thing is real and important. And it's a momentum game. The more doors you get, the better you do in those stores, the easier it is to get the incremental set of doors. Uh, and which is not to say we haven't made mistakes. Like we went into 3,000 CVS locations very early on in our life cycle of our brand and it didn't work. We were in like a bad set and we were in the back corner and there was no foot traffic. The consumer was wrong for our brand and that was a flop. So it's okay. Lesson learned. So it's not that you're always going to get it right. And, and it's not that getting doors is always good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes the chargebacks can even exceed the revenue you were going to make. So you might take a bath on getting us whole set of doors. So it has to be the right doors. And then this is a trait thing to say, but like the work really begins when you get the account because moving product, you get the pipe bill, the initial PO, the account's not worth a damn unless product moved there. So then you have a whole set of things you did to get into the account. And now you have an entirely different playbook of things to make stuff move at the account. So this is an interesting one considering kind of the conversation, a lot of the e-commerce players who made their hay or scaled their business to eight figures in revenue are saying, okay, the next stage of this is getting into doors. Like you're talking about is one of the parts of the playbook, making sure that the e-commerce store and your ads and everything are flowing in a nice way to make it a little more ubiquitous. So that kind of your top of the funnel is filled for both retail and and e-commerce is that something that everyone should be definitely thinking about? because obviously everyone says it but we're talking boots on the ground actually doing it so is that something you've seen be one part of one of your playbooks that makes a lot of sense a hundred percent a hundred percent like just like retailers want to minimize risk consumers want to minimize risk they might want to just grab one bar 
you can't do that on our site. It's not economical to sell you one bar. But if you're at Sprouts and you had seen an ad of ours last week and then you see us, now you can buy one bar. So there's, and then I'll also, I would look at both brick and mortar and online. They're the same thing, more or less. Like your caddy on a shelf is a Facebook ad. It gets a certain number of impressions every day. A certain number of those people who got the impression convert. Those impressions cost you something or maybe nothing, right? There might be slotting fees and things like that, in, in which case you can amortize that. And cool, that's what this, these impressions cost us, blah, blah, blah. You can normalize one to be roughly similar to the other, but they're both impress, like they're both places where you're, you can convert people and the more impressions, the better, especially if they're cost effective. So again, that flywheel thing is, is very real. And just seeing you one more time in brick and mortar or vice versa online, they may have bought you at Sprouts and then, but they rarely go to Sprouts yeah. and then they saw an ad and they remember that they ate it at Sprouts and now they convert online. So it, it's bi-directional. Yeah. That's why I think omni-channel is like, if you're not doing omni-channel, if you're only D to C, it's like, you're going to get eaten alive out there yeah. if you're a consumer good food or beverage product. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. One thing I think is interesting, you were talking about slotting fees and how it is the same thing. It's like an ad unit. I think it's a really powerful way to look at it. So let's just use some of the ad principles that like everyone talks about all that. Okay, what's your hook? What's the, how are you actually having a compelling offer? So ads are in the scroll, but maybe you can do something that grabs people's attention. How do you do the same thing in a shelf? Packaging. Space? What's your, like your framework or heuristic around, because everyone will say packaging, right? Just like you said, is there, is it colors? Is it the way that you use fonts? Like, I'm sure there is a whole host of playbooks online. I've never even actually researched it that, that yeah. go into this. What do you think about that? Anyone who tells you there's a playbook is lying because it's highly dependent on the category and form factor and retailer and consumer. There are so many things that would make one piece of advice not make sense somewhere else. So like, I'll just give you an example with bars. There, the bar buyer is a certain type of person and that same person who, and what I mean by that is, let's say they're a label reader, which they are generally with bars. They want to look, and what are they reading for? Generally the same things. What's the protein? What's the source of protein? What's the sugar? They care about carbs. What are the carbs? And is it clean label? And of course, does it taste good? And is the price point right? All those things matter. Now that same person might walk over to the chips aisle and do none of those things. They're more price elastic. They don't even look at the back. They just want dipping chips to put in their guac. Like, that same person might as well be a different person depending on what category they're shopping for and what specific form factor in the category they're shopping for. So you need packaging that is so dialed in that it's taking all of those forces into account. Yeah. And like with bars, for instance, first of all, you have to check a bunch of boxes just to be considered in their purchase. But then maybe there are certain trends. So maybe keto is exploding as it did for seven straight years. So how do you ride that trend and how do you get it to boost sales? You could have a big keto on your product, but does that off put people who aren't in keto? Maybe not. Maybe it does, but 
net, it's still a win. These are so dietary callouts are one way to get specific. You asked what, like, what do you do? Like with us, also look at your set. What are your competitors doing? So if you go into craft beer, what you'll find is color is not a differentiator. Everyone is colorful. So if we're just like, oh, let's just be really colorful. Your SOL, like everyone's colorful. That's not going to do anything. You're better off being all black, matte yeah. black with white lettering than you are being neon yellow. Similar in the bar set. It's okay, cool. Color's not a differentiator. What we learned is text size, literally the font size is actually a huge differentiator. If you look at a set of bars, like the largest typeface is really appealing to the eye. And then like certain callouts and then just being like provocative in any way. And then just being different, right? IQ bar. That's weird. What if IQ yeah. bar? What yeah. is IQ? So it's like even down to your trademark has to be, or not, doesn't have to be provocative. I would argue should be provocative because you're just going to get free interest, right? If something said, let's pretend Cliff Bar was a startup. Cliff Bar it doesn't really mean anything to me. IQ bar. Whoa, I know what IQ is. It seems like brain is different. Everything else is body focused. I think it goes even down to the trademark, but find the things that'll allow you to, without having a person there pointing to it, demoing it, cutting up samples and feeding it to people without all of that, how do you still drive trial? You have to be like perfect on all of those things. So drive trial, this is a really fascinating idea. I think like what you've said is such a, there's so much stuff to unpack. One thing I talk to people about when they test ads specifically is look, there's core ICP who's going to come and they're going to use you. Not that they weren't going to use you no matter what, but they're like just a warm audience. There's a bunch of adjacent audiences there that you have to answer for too. And it's like in messaging, et cetera. The thing is with ads, you can spray and pray a little bit more. It seems like with packaging, almost what you're saying is you've got to build all five of those ads that you're trying to test into one thing so that five people can walk by and have each experience that they need to do that. So I'm curious about the amount of testing that goes into that and the amount of, like you said, cause you got down to, we have to get down to these specific things that they need down to the trademark. How much testing went into that? And again, I, like you said, you're trying to get 10%, 15, 20% better every year on different lines. If you got 10, 15% better like results through just optimizing the packaging year over year, what would that mean like to the business in terms of just being able to, I don't know, drive sell through in a retail location? Yeah, it's a good question. It literally means 10% more sales, which would be yeah. a lot of money, but AB testing is hard. Yeah. And then also what I said earlier is even more complicated than I originally framed it to be because that need that packaging needs to work in a natural channel, AKA whole food sprouts, whatever conventional channel Kroger, let's say, yeah. uh, mass Walmart target, big box, Costco, Sam's BJ's. So it needs to span everything, socioeconomic status, gender, not necessarily. It doesn't, some people will say, no, actually it doesn't. You should just only sell into the channels you want to sell into and go really deep on those channels. And that's fair enough. That is a way to do it. I'm more interested in true mass market because it's very hard to build a really big 
consumer good food and beverage company unless you can succeed in all of those channels. And I'm interested in building a really big business. So this isn't like gospel. It's just, I think what is needed to build a massive business in this space. But what was it? No, it's absolutely all this stuff is super valuable. We're just talking about how packaging, how like the rigor on A-B testing your packaging and how long it takes to actually get. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you can't A-B test. So you can't A-B test, right? So you have like on the short end of rotation, meaning a retailer says, okay, we'll sell you for 10 weeks or 12 weeks or that's a set amount of time. Or you get into the planogram, the POG, which means you're in the set semi-permanently. You might get yanked, you might not, but probably you're not. And you at least have a year, let's say. You might have a couple of years before the category manager reevaluates. And so they're not going to be cool with you just swap. First of all, operationally, it's a massive lift to change packaging. You literally have to make new print plates. It's very expensive. It's, it's not doable. And then also Category managers have to be cool with that, which generally they are. And so you can't A-B test. You can't over year stretches. You might rebrand and then, oh, damn, we saw this uptick. But like you can't month to month change your packaging. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really friggin' important. You can make micro tweaks. So a good example would be keto. A lot of people have a big keto on their packaging. And then, okay, keto's tapering off. Now low sugar and low carb is replacing it more or less. How do we deprioritize, maybe literally shrink that word and augment these words? You can do stuff like that, but every time you do that, it's painful. And you also don't have that much money, then, unless you do have a lot of money, but most people don't. So what are you going to burn 50K buying a whole new set of packaging to, to test that? Maybe not. I don't know. It's just tougher. It's a lot tougher. So this is interesting because you talked about two things, right? So like plates, first of all, didn't know anything about that. I come from originally in, in footwear and fashion. So building lasts and molds is really expensive, time consuming, the science behind it. No one really understands how hard it is to actually get molds of feet that work, that you can then mass produce. And then if they get messed up by like a fraction of a millimeter, the entire run is fucked. And so Hearing you talk about plates, I'm like, oh, this is giving me flashbacks of factory of the old factory days. But I think one thing that's really interesting is like saying you're say you're D to C, right? Only. Do you feel like a lot of people will iterate on those things if they're doing D to C CPG kind of stuff versus going in yes. retail because of the difference in the business models and like what you, who you're answering to essentially? Yeah. The, uh, so Perhaps I should have said this at, before I went on that tirade, which is, which I did say earlier, starting online is great. It, it does allow you to A-B test a lot of stuff. And it does allow you to test what words work, what words resonate, what don't. However, it's not a perfect analog to brick and mortar. So you should and will be always testing creatives and, and you can even change your packaging digitally, right? You can augment certain things and. You could have a badge that's a bestseller badge or not. There's all these things you can do that don't even require you changing fundamentally the rendering of that packaging. And you can learn a lot, but it's not going to replace. It's not going to tell you, yes, 
this work on your website and therefore it will work in Sam's Club. That's yeah. not going to happen. It give you directionally that this is working better than that. And so, yeah, you, but again, I think this is why a lot of brands that are D2C, they, maybe they even get to 20 plus million D2C and they're like, cool, this is going to resonate in Kroger. And then they just flop in Kroger yeah. for a whole host of reasons. It could even be like the shopper expects a certain price per unit and a certain like grammage of a bar and you're selling, and that's, let's say 45 to 60 grams and you're selling mini bars that are 20 grams. And so that works online because it works, but now that doesn't work for that category manager. You're going to have to fundamentally change your product. And then once you fundamentally change it, you've priced yourself out of that reasonable price range for the consumer. Like it just doesn't map. There's a lot of things that don't map. So you want us, in my opinion, don't make or be trepidatious about making things that can be successful online that could never work in brick and mortar. Like when you create offerings online, think through the downstream implications for brick and yeah. mortar, Yeah, which a lot of people don't do. So this is a really fascinating one. I think it's important to double click on. When you started the business, again, you were formulating, you were working on it for a year, launched on Kickstarter, et cetera. Did you have every intention of putting this in brick and mortar as well as e-commerce from when you started? Because like we're talking about, hey, when you start, think about it, make sure that you know that this is something that will probably be a part of your business eventually. What was that? Was that part of the, the calculus when you first started? It, I don't want to lie and say I was overly calculated because I really was not. Yeah. It, I wanted to sell wherever I could sell. And honestly, a simpler business is better in many ways. If I could just do it D to C, I probably would. Like, why wouldn't you? It's less channels. I'd try to do the Moise Ali native deodorant thing where it's grow it to 30 million. And then some big strategic comes in and they say, Hey, you, I'm going to buy this because you're really good at e-com and I can just plug you into my brick and mortar distribution and make you way bigger. And therefore it's worth it to buy you. That's great. If you can get that. I think it's insanely tough to do today, but I didn't know how to. So I needed to see, okay, what can I get my daily Shopify sales up to? And then what, yeah. and certain stuff along the way totally surprised me. Amazon very quickly was doing four to five X the daily sales that Shopify was doing. Wow. Still is today. I didn't have that on my bingo card. And a lot of people were saying like, don't do Amazon. You don't get the customer data. And so, okay, so you want me to totally leave all this revenue off the table even? And the revenue is also in some cases more efficient. I don't know. And then brick and mortar, I also didn't know either. How much can you drive in brick and mortar? Will it even resonate? And then what, what I found is it did in some places and it didn't in others. So I had for better or worse, a totally like blank slate. Yeah. And I think the goal was try everything. Yeah. I actually, it sounds silly. I think trial and error is the best strategy yeah. in business, which is hilarious because you should operate based on data and blah, blah, blah. If you're creating something new, there is no data. Yeah. There's data that's helpful. It's directionally helpful. It's not yeah. exactly helpful. Yeah. And 
So it's more of a throw a bunch of stuff at the wall, see what works and try and lean into the channels that are crushing it. Yeah. I think what you find from there is, okay, what thread should I pull now? Okay. This is interesting. I'm going to keep pulling on this thread, but you don't actually know what threads to pull. I think this is the biggest one is look, we all try to, we all look at the science of things, right? Okay. Hey, look, what, what has worked? What hasn't worked? What makes the most sense? How did they do it? Let's re let's reverse engineer. But at the end of the day, if you're starting something new, whether there is a market there or not, you started something brain bars, but like bars had been in existence for a long time before that. I'd say, okay, there is a roadmap. There's a roadmap here of bars that have been made. I'm trying a new version of it. But at the end of the day, I have to test and I have to go that way. I love this. There's this quote by Napoleon where he's just take every opportunity and advantage you have. And if the idea is like, there's nothing here and I have the opportunity to test everything to just see what actually works. So people, like you said, will tell you not to do Amazon because you don't own your data. I'm not leaving four, five X, the amount of revenue on the table from another channel, from my kind of direct channel on the table. And those customers could undoubtedly become my direct customers or become customers in retail. This is like you said, omni-channel is the way. If I'm essentially just trying to say, okay, I want someone who buys IQ and has it at home, but they're out and maybe they need something and they know that, I don't know, Kroger is across the street, but they, and they know they want an IQ bar, they're going to go in there and buy it. That makes me look better at IQ Kroger, which then leads them to buy more stuff from Amazon or go to my DDC store because they bought, maybe there's a flavor that they can't get in any of the places that's in my e-commerce store. So I think I'm taking away, like a big one is have no perceptions of what is right and wrong. Just test those things specifically and be super like egoless almost about what it takes to win and just dig into those things. Like it's really powerful stuff. It's really powerful stuff. And also let's not forget iOS 14.5 happened. COVID happened. Yep. A recession or whether or not it was technically a recession, whatever. 2022 happened. Yeah. Implosion. Like if you're all in on D2C and then iOS 14.5 happened, what happened to all those brands? Oh, yeah. Not great. No. But all the brands who had like already by then really well diversified. It was yeah. whatever. It was a blip. And so it's just, how are you resilient against all these exogenous forces? And then, yeah, to your point, don't have an ego about it. Food service, right? Selling to cafes or offices or a law firm or being in a hospital, like coffee shop. That's not sexy. That's not, but if that's the way to get an incremental 10 million in revenue, I will lean heavily into that. It doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't matter where there's, especially with food and beverage, you can sell it anywhere. You can sell it internationally. I could say I would have no problem with half my business being international. If I thought that was the most efficient way to get incremental revenue dollars, it isn't, but I would have no problem with that. Yeah, I think that's the, like you come to the table, it's the old, like rent is due every day. It's look, if we have to figure this out, let's just figure out the most efficient way to do it. And the brand grows no matter what. And like what I'm hearing, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but let's just find ways to grow and build a meaningful business. Like at the end of the day, the ways that we do that, we're going to stay true to our core tenants, the things that we do, the value that we deliver our customers what we believe, all of those things, that standard principled already baked into the business and the product. 
On top of that, let's just find the best ways to distribute this thing so everyone can receive the value, right? So if it's at law offices, let's do it. If it's at Starbucks or some coffee chain, let's do it. If it's in, I don't know, a Bavaria, let's do it. Whatever that is, let's make that happen. It's really powerful stuff. I think like the world gets a lot of the people talking heads get very didactic about the way that they communicate this stuff. And this is all just very practical reminders of how you should actually think about it. Be really rigorous, but also be super open. And I think people either over-index on being way too open or way too rigorous and not having a really steady balance of both things. That's, I had one LinkedIn post where I was, I had this similar thought where I was like, everyone who's obsessed with D to C, go spend an entire day in Costco. Yeah. There's this whole echo chamber of D to C, blah, 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 blah. So dude, do you realize how much one Costco club moves a day? Oh. So it's, which is, D2C is great. We have yeah. a great D2C business. We think a lot about it. We're always trying to optimize it. Go spend a day in Costco and it'll like blow your mind. Go demo at Costco. Go talk to 10,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. That, honestly, the first year of your business, I think people get obsessed with like hyper growth too early. You should be testing like everything, every yeah. sales channel. Yeah. So this is interesting. I want to talk about this a little bit and then we'll, we'll wrap. So we're talking a lot about how you like build the business, how you get sales, how you think about all of the channels that you're in. I don't think people think about this and I know I can hear it in every way that you're communicating that you're thinking about this is the operational portion of delivering these things to market and making sure that the costs make sense, making sure that all of, I don't know, every single thing works together. So for instance, I'm in software. So like we build something and when the costs are locked, they're locked and it's really headcount and then server space. And okay, if we want to go do some sort of, some sort of really big tech build, but then we can stretch those things as a CapEx expense and amortize it over time, et cetera. So like, how do you think about that? Because essentially you're cycling through money, reinvesting it into the business regularly trying to deal with cash flow, et cetera, cash flow constraints versus getting POs, blah, blah, blah. All the standard stuff, you know, is talked about regularly. How do you balance those things and those thought processes with just trying to grow the business? Because like I always say there's middle out and then out in and like middle out, frankly, in a market like today is such an important part that still isn't talked about enough is like, how do you get the operational excellence? so locked in that you have really strong margins to lean into when you go hard at sales. What have you been thinking about? Because obviously you came from a sales background, but that's not your actual background, right? You taught, you, like you said, you learned everything on your own. So how have you been thinking about that? And what have you done to learn these things on the fly? Yeah. And by the way, everything is operations. So sales has sales operations. And another thing too, is there's nothing insanely complicated about anything any of us do unless you're truly doing like everyone i think people like to overcomplicate things and when you really get down to like first principles it's not that complicated so learning the operations takes a lot of time and effort but it's not that complicated mm. so yeah you're going to need to go stand on the factory floor a hundred times to really fully appreciate it but if you do that you will be an expert no yeah. question about it so I think there's this dynamic where the rocket ships of yesteryear, all the brands that 
everyone was talking about. They were quite loud and they're growing really fast. Generally, the case with those brands was they were sales and marketing obsessed. Yeah. And I think the rocket ships of tomorrow are the brands that are operationally obsessed. And don't get me wrong, they're, they care about sales and marketing and they're good at sales and marketing. They're over-indexing on ops, not sales and marketing. Yeah. Because the gap, those rocket ships of yesteryear are out of gas and there's no Exxon station anywhere in sight. And so they're just, they're that default dead status. And I, I just think if you've built, there's so many brands that would have never worked. Like they'll get super far, but if you actually look down to the nuts and bolts, they would have never worked. It was doomed from the start. The unit economics were never there. They survived on a lot of artificial funding, but the unit economics, there was no path for it ever to have worked. And that's like a tragedy. So I think from the get-go, it's like, you have to have a very real line of sight into, okay, this is financially feasible. Yeah. And then you have to very quickly understand, yeah, when you're making millions of units of stuff, you have to be operationally dialed in because one mistake, literally one mistake operationally could put your entire business under. Yeah. So it's just a binary thing. It's like, you got to either be great or like you're dead. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That's great. I think that heat you just brought, I love, which is the rocket ships of, of tomorrow or today and tomorrow are all going to be operationally obsessed versus sales and marketing obsessed like they were in the past. And we know all the stories, right? We're all watching them. A lot of friends who were paper millionaires before this all got taken down to zero by that stuff. So completely agree with you. So I have three questions in my anti-rapid fire section. First one. What's the best advice you've ever received? Oh man, I should probably have a better answer to this or know an answer to this. I would say, I'll give you one that I really like, which is have contingencies for success. Everyone's obsessed with contingencies for failure. And very few people actually have contingencies for success. Yeah. What if this goes 5x better than we thought it would. Everyone focuses on where are the fail, potential failure modes and blah, blah, blah. Those are all incredibly important too. You also have to have contingencies for success. What if this 5x is our expectations? Do we have a yeah. plan for that? So I'll go with that one. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I agree with you, by the way. Like we all think about what do we do when we fail, but never... If, there, if we hit this mark, what do we, what's next? What's next? We set, set all these plans and goals, but not if something goes, yeah, like you said, remarkably well. Next one is, <clears throat> next one is if there was a, like a 22 year old Will or someone, and I'm sure you talk to a lot of younger, younger founders or early stage people who are thinking about doing this. So you gave one earlier, which is don't found something like don't quit your job learn, take that first year, iterate while you're working. What other advice would you give someone who's starting out or thinking about this or entrepreneurially inclined like you were at that at the beginning? Get a job. I would say that I don't like the move of starting a company out of college. Certainly it's worked and it can work. I don't 
think it's the most, the best risk adjusted way to go about it because there's value in understanding how a company works. Yeah. How does a hierarchy work? What is it like to work for a boss? By the way, even if just the value is this sucks, I don't want to do this. That's really valuable. Yeah. Like you want the other side of the coin for if you do want to start something. Now, you know, if I fail, I'm going to have to go back to that. That's a pretty powerful motivator. I would say another thing that people don't often do is really play out the personal, social, interpersonal, relationship-centric ramifications of starting a business. Just think about all the non-business stuff. Is your life architected in a way that will support this thing you want to do professionally? And it's similar to the doomed at the start concept I talked about earlier with a product that had bad unity economics. You might be doomed at the start because your personal life architecture is not conducive to what is required to achieve success. And so yeah. you're always going to fail because your wife was never going to be cool with you working until 2 a.m. or whatever the thing, <laughs> the dynamic is. Yeah. So I think just like you have to architect and it's always going to be worse than you think, not better. Yeah. So yeah. can you survive on half the amount of money that you want? Maybe you have in your, in your head, I want to make 100K with, by year two. You have to be prepared to not make 100K yeah. till year five. Is, are you okay with that? Or is that going to like totally blow up everything? Because it, if it is, yeah. you're probably screwed. Yeah. So just understand your personal architecture first. My dad always says, no matter what, whether you're in a place where you want to be aggressive or not, um, build a tire around yourself. So if you fall, you don't hit the ground without a little bit of a little bit of cushion. And so that's savings. That's what, whatever you need to do specifically to do that. But I, like the architecture of your life, I think is such an incredible, make sure you understand is incredible way to, uh, to end this. Will, that was a masterclass for me. I loved hearing about that. Like I have not gone that deep on like the fundamentals of CPG with anybody. And I learned a hell of a lot. Made me think about SaaS and everything and how we think about it as well. I know you're more active on LinkedIn. If anyone wants to interact with you, is that the place to do it? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Okay. Yeah. We'll link that out. We'll link that out in the show notes. Also, go buy IQ bars, everybody. Incredible product. Obviously, you just got tapped into the mind behind or one of the minds behind uh, those amazing products. So, Will, I really appreciate your time and thank you for joining us. It was incredible. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me.